The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. The eyes of the world, the eyes of the populations of the world are on you and we have your numbers. That lingering central please remain and we'll see what comes next. We need to make sure that what sits there on a piece of paper is actually going to turn into tangible, actionable projects on the ground that are going to make a difference to people's lives. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. Good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepke. Now, in a moment, we're going to talk about a Bloomberg scoop about Prince Andrew. But first of all, some news in the world of politics. Boris Johnson's latest effort to draw a line under the lobbying and sleaze row. Well, it was thwarted at the last minute in Parliament yesterday. An objection from a Conservative MP, Christopher Chope, to the government's motion to overturn its controversial effort to block the suspension of the former MP Owen Paterson. Well, all of that means that there will be today an hour-long debate on the very issue plaguing Tories. Plus, MPs in the north of England are furious about plans to scrap the eastern leg of the high-speed two-rail line between the Midlands and Leeds. It's expected that the Transport Secretary, Grant Shapps, will make the announcement on Thursday, along with the scaling back of Northern Powerhouse Rail as part of the new Integrated Rail Plan for Great Britain. Now, the Home Office Minister, Damien Hines, was challenged about the reports this morning. We're absolutely committed to levelling up. I think that is runs through, is infused in everything government does. Transport also is part of that, and so are and so are many other things. But on the specifics of the railways, we're going to have to wait for the integrated rail review. So trouble for the Conservatives, but also for the House of Windsor. On to our Bloomberg scoop now, because a £1.5 million loan taken out by Prince Andrew was paid off by one of the biggest Conservative Party donors, David Rowland. That, according to two people familiar with the transactions. Joining me this morning to discuss is Bloomberg's Harry Wilson, who has done uh, the investigation along with Gavin Finch. Uh, the investigative duo is what I'll call you, because obviously you're well known for all of the books that you've written too, Harry. Great to have you on. First of all, just what did you find out about Prince Andrew's finances? Um, well, good morning. Um, yes, what we found out is that um, there's always been a question mark over Prince Andrew's um, money. Essentially, how does he afford his lifestyle? He seems to live this uh, fairly lavish lifestyle, and yet his visible sources of income are, are don't appear to match his spending. So, for instance, he has a or has had a £250,000 stipend from his mother, the Queen. And his only other source of income that we know of is a £20,000 Royal Naval pension, which all has begged the question for several years, you know, how, how does he do it? Well, we think we might have found a bit of an insight into, into how it all works. And it comes via um, a bank called Bank Haviland. that's a private bank based in Luxembourg. What we've found is that uh, Prince Andrew, over a couple of years, borrowed a total of um, £1.5 million pounds from Bank Havan. Not only that, but he actually borrowed on an unsecured basis, which um, we were told is pretty unusual for this bank. 
Now, there, there is a uh, the, the interesting thing here is that having borrowed this money in November 2017, 11 days after he borrowed it, uh, a almost exactly similar amount of money was transferred to his account with Bank Haviland. And that money appears to have paid off this debt. So that money came from um, the owner of the bank uh, or from a company linked to the owner of the bank, David Rowland, uh, who uh, Andrew has been friends with for over a decade. And um, it's all raising some questions about, you know, what precisely are Prince Andrew's uh, links to this bank? You know, why were they being so, so seemingly sort of generous to him? Um, you know, we mm. have reported in the past about Prince Andrew and how he's... Um, been something of an uh, unofficial door opener to this bank. And so, you know, this, this, I think, provides a bit more of an insight into, into that relationship. Yeah. So tell me a bit more so about David Rowland, his brother, his family business, his connections also to the Conservative Party. Well, David Rowland is a Guernsey-based businessman. Um, he's a bit of a, uh, a rough character. He's had certain sort of controversies throughout his, his career. Um, but he, in 2009, uh, bought this, uh, what was then uh, Bank Hav- sorry, uh, Kaufing Bank's uh, Luxembourg arms. So this is the Icelandic bank that went bust in 2009. David Rowland bought this and renamed it uh, Bank Haviland after his... Uh, private estates on the island of Guernsey, Haviland Hall. And, and has then promptly, he's um, basically created this, this private bank that has gone after some rather sketchy clients over the last decade or so. Um, David Rowan himself is, is, doesn't come from, from any money. He's, a, he's the son of a uh, scrap metal dealer. He's a you know, boy done good. But he's also um, become better known in Britain as a major political donor. Um, so he has given something in order of more than £6 million to the Conservative Party, uh, which makes him uh, among their, their, their largest donors. In fact, at one point, he was actually named the party's uh, treasurer, which is essentially their, their senior fundraising position, although he didn't actually take up that role because um, questions were raised about his, uh, his business dealings. And so he, he actually uh, stepped down before actually taking the job. OK, so then I suppose just lastly... On Bank Haviland itself, I, I suppose, what do they say to this? And, and this comes at, at quite a, a timely moment, this investigation, both, you know, when it comes to Prince Andrew, but also uh, for Tories battling the allegations of sleaze. So uh, you're right in the sense that, yes, it, it does sort of come at a, a time when there are a lot of questions being asked about uh, party finance, particularly uh, around the, the Conservative Party. Um, what Bank Havland themselves say about it is, is not an awful lot. They, they say they can't comment on a, a customer. Uh, Prince Andrew's uh, spokesperson has also declined to comment about the transactions and uh, essentially saying that the prince is uh, due a degree of privacy and David Rowland himself hasn't actually responded to any of our requests for comment. So there hasn't been exactly uh, a lot said from the various parties in the story as yet. Um, but... Um, Yes, I mean, mm. uh, we've, we've already had though, some, some reaction to this. Um, Norman Baker, who's a former UK government minister and uh, author of a book on royal finances, has actually um, said that this is a, uh, an, an issue that should be investigated with some urgency by Parliament. So uh, we will see what, what comes of that.
Harry, thank you so much for being with me and for explaining uh, that Bloomberg scoop, a fascinating one on Prince Andrew. That is Bloomberg's Harry Wilson there, who wrote the piece along uh, with his colleague Gavin Finch. Uh, and on that note, let me bring in Bloomberg's EMEA news director, David Merritt. Um, listening into that conversation, I mean, I, I say it's timely. It, it really is, isn't it? This involves the royal family, the Conservative Party, money, and, and all of this with the background of the seas allegations. Yes, absolutely. It ticks all the boxes, doesn't it? All these questions, as Harry was saying, swirling around. And it's all the stuff, you know, for the public, this really does great, I think, with the public. It's these backroom deals, um, the financing between lavish lifestyles, um, amounts of money that, frankly, are eye-popping to anyone. Harry mentioned the quarter million pounds Prince Andrew gets as a stipend for the Queen. That's a lot of money for most people, but seemingly not enough to fund the lifestyle that he was after. So he took out this one and a half million pound loan uh, to pay for the rest of it. And people find this unbelievable. And, and, and also that it is so shady, you know, it's all so murky and it's uh, untransparent. And then, of course, we had this connection to the Conservative Party and of course the couple of weeks we've just had with these allegations of of what we call sleaze in this country um, how people are funded and why and their motivations for doing it um, it's just another example of really why our the ruling class in this country why trust in them perhaps is really at rock bottom absolutely and um and this also at a moment where on Remembrance Sunday the Queen was not present it is perhaps a moment of sort of handing over in terms of generations of, of these important state occasions. Um, and there is more focus on the Queen's children, is there not, in terms of their integrity and probity as they kind of take the mantle forward. So there's there's a royal element to this. And the Queen is head of state, the, the, whoever the King or Queen is yeah, head of absolutely. state. Absolutely. And the, the Queen has such a huge um, central part in all of our sort of national psyche, doesn't she? And of course, questions being asked the first time about her about her health. We all think and hope maybe she's immortal, but perhaps, yes. you know, it's clearly not the case. And her missing that at the last minute, pulling out of Sunday's uh, Remembrance Service was a reminder that she is a 95-year-old woman. And at some point in the not-too-distant future, she is going to hand, uh, have to hand over to the next generation. Of course, the second son is Prince Andrew, about whom, let's not forget, this isn't the only scandal surrounding Prince Andrew. The far um, more reported one of late has been his, his association, of course, with the late um, uh, uh, Jeffrey Epstein, uh, which that case continues to roll on. Yes. Um, and um, and of course, we've got the Ghislaine Maxwell trial happening in New York, again, bringing that, that issue to the surface again. A very uncomfortable reminder for the Queen, no doubt, as well. Absolutely. A thought then on Boris Johnson. The polling does show a hit to Johnson because of the sleaze allegations. This is um, a Conservative government, if not under Johnson, a very, very long one altogether, um, is this a kind of repeat of sleaze, perhaps bringing down a government that we have from the 90s? I think this is the big question. You know, those yeah. of us who remember those those last days of the of the major government, mm. um, you know, it, there is some familiarity there, isn't there? You know, plunging poll ratings, this sort of sense of desperation. I've had texts from Conservative MPs talking about how angry they feel with the administration, with Johnson's government, uh, with everything that's happened, all these own goals of the past few weeks. I would draw one big difference, though, with yes. back in the 1990s. 90s. Of course, we had the leader of the opposition there was one young Tony Blair. <laughs> Remember him? Um, very, very popular, very charismatic and um, a revolutionary leader for his party. I don't think you can probably, even the kindest uh, commentators are not probably saying the same thing about the current opposition. So we're not quite in the same place where there's a roaring kind of swing towards the Labour Party. But it is going to worry about benches and particularly those new ones up in the the, red, the former Red Wall seats who are in marginal 
seats. Now, we are some way away from an election, but they're going to be wondering whether their jobs are safe under this under this prime minister. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. The Securities Minister at the Home Office, Damien Hines, says that it could take weeks to get to the bottom of what led to the suspected Liverpool terror attack. Four people have been arrested in connection with the car explosion on Remembrance Sunday. Meanwhile, the first official data on jobs since the government withdrew its furlough scheme suggests that it has not derailed the recovery when it comes to employment in Britain. Figures that use information from the tax system to gauge the number of employees and come one month ahead of the official numbers, well, they showed an extra 160,000 employees added to payrolls in October. And just lastly, the Prime Minister's father has been accused of inappropriately touching the Conservative MP Caroline Noakes. She has claimed that it happened at a party conference 18 years ago. Stanley Johnson says he has no recollection of the former minister. And now let's talk about uh, the rest of the programme to migration. A record number of migrants crossed the channel in small boats last Thursday, 1,185, according to British figures, which the government describes as, quote, unacceptable. Now, the Home Office Minister Damien Hines said this morning that people's lives are being put in danger by crossing that body of water. But more than 23,000 people have made the crossing from France to the UK by boat so far this year. That is a sharp rise on the 8,404 recorded in 2020. Joining me now to discuss is Peter Walsh, who is researcher at Oxford's Migration Observatory. Peter, of course, there were the customary headlines around this record number of migrants arriving from France. The Home Secretary, Priti Patel, and France's Interior Minister, uh, Gérald Darmanin, agreed on how to make the Channel route unviable. Is that something that is possible in your view? It's certainly something that's very difficult. They've been trying to make it unviable now for years. Um, But the scale of the problem is such that that is going to be a very difficult task to achieve. When we speak to the French, they talk about having to police upwards of 100 kilometres of coastline to prevent these small boats from setting off. So the magnitude of the problem to be tackled is very substantial. And I think certainly in the short and perhaps the medium term as well, we're going to see these crossings continue. What is it that has fueled the the rise in numbers? I mentioned the year-on-year increase. Is this to do with Brexit or is this war and poverty elsewhere that is fueling fueling these desperate individuals? It's several things. Um, I mean, when we look at where these individuals come from, they are some of the most chaotic parts of the world, countries like Iran, Afghanistan, Syria, Yemen, the Sudan, 
places where there is political persecution, places that are wracked by civil and ethnic conflict. So certainly these geopolitical factors are a root cause. But there are others as well. Um, COVID resulted in increasing restriction on the other routes that asylum seekers previously found popular, road, rail, by air, stowing away on lorries. Those routes had anyway become more policed in recent years, which made them less viable and which we think have led these desperate individuals to take this other dangerous route. People often ask, what about Brexit? Has that played a role? If it is, I don't think it's likely to have played a big one. But some asylum seekers, when we interview them in Calais, there is this perception that because we're no longer a part of the EU, we're no longer a part of the arrangement that allowed us to return asylum seekers to France. And so there is a perception on the part of these migrants that once they get to the UK, it's going to be very difficult for them to be returned. Um, Is Preeti Patel, is the government responding to voter desires here? Certainly. I think it's widely accepted that crossings of this kind are unacceptable. They are unsatisfactory. We don't want them to take place. And the government has made it quite clear that they believe they are honouring the wishes of the public. And I think that's probably accurate. Certainly a great swathe of the public do not want these crossings to be taking place. Will the government's new strategy then to sort of prevent people claiming asylum in the UK if they arrive by boat illegally work? Because the general criticism against the government's plans is usually that there isn't another route available for people to try to claim asylum here. Yeah, and the new policy doesn't really do anything to address that. The simple fact is that to claim asylum in the UK, you first have to reach the UK Um, You can't apply for asylum from abroad, such as in a British embassy. And unfortunately, there is no visa to come to the UK for the specific purpose of claiming asylum. Therefore, these people are compelled to take these unauthorised routes. Another part of the policy, the new plan for immigration that's currently before Parliament, is a deterrent policy. Um, It's saying if you came without authorization from a safe country where we think you should have claimed asylum, a country, say, like France, we will try to send you back. There are just two problems here. One is that asylum seekers, when we interview them, they typically are not aware of policy changes of this, which raises questions about whether the deterrent effect will actually happen. Um, And also to return these asylum seekers to France or other safe countries they've come from, It requires cooperation with these countries. It requires bilateral agreements. And there is precious little evidence so far that we've made any progress in hammering out agreements of that kind. Yeah, it does seem as if the UK-French relationship in particular is perhaps at a low point, given, I mean, the the fight around fishing and Brexit, other issues, but also about the migrant clash. I mean, what is France's attitude? What is your reading of France's attitude in terms of addressing you know, migrant flows through France and then on to the UK? Well, it, it is clear that actually the French attitude is similar to ours. They don't want this to happen. They do not want asylum seekers congregating in and around Calais, 
forming these camps. You recall a few years ago, there was a large camp of about 8,000 migrants, the Calais jungle, that got dismantled. France does not want to see that happen again. And that's why actually beneath the rhetoric and what seems like a strained relationship on the surface, still the French and British do continue to work together to try to tackle this problem. That includes the UK having sent over 100 million euros over the past few years to aid the French activities to prevent these boat crossings. But it is such a tough, a tough problem. And now the smuggling gangs that are chiefly responsible for these crossings, they have become more established. How is the UK treating migrants upon arrival? Uh, I mean, quotes from the Refugee Council, for example, speaking to The Times, accusing the Home Office of failing to deal with the crisis of, of leaving men and women and young children sort of sleeping on floors without hot food when they um, might arrive in kind of desperate need. Uh, and this is a criticism, you know, that is obviously not new. Is the government simply not devoting enough money to, to the issue? That's what critics would say. I do have some sympathy with the government because it's a very difficult problem to deal with a thousand people, most of whom are desperately in need. They need health care. They need that, that support. And it is very difficult. There have certainly been cases that have been identified where the government may have fallen short in its goal to provide the necessary support. In general, we know what happens, which is that almost all of the channel migrants do claim asylum. They're put up in accommodation. Recently, that has had to have been hotels, not ideal. The usual policy is to put them in private rental accommodation that's dispersed around the country. So still, I think it is fair to say the government are still grappling with the enormity of this issue, and it doesn't seem to be going away, unfortunately. And the terror attack in Liverpool, will that harden attitudes to migrants? Um, I mean, obviously, these are allegations and uh, it's a story that's still being investigated. But is it an issue that voters sort of sympathise with or, or does this cause a kind of spike in reaction in terms of voter views of migrants? It can do. I mean, the trend over the past few years has actually been for voters' views on immigration to soften Mm. Events like this, and when we learn potentially of the individual's migrant or asylum-seeking background, that can cause some backlash. I'm not expecting anything major, though, in that regard. And there is still, by the way, a great deal of sympathy on the part of the British public for the plight of people who take that dangerous journey to come to the UK by small boat, because that indicates just how desperate I think they are, and people do recognise that. Do you think this is the peak, though, in terms of migrant crossings? I mean, usually come autumn and the dark days of November, we see a drop in numbers. We do. There's definitely a clear seasonal effect. And that's why I think it's so striking, so surprising that we see numbers continuing um, at a time when conditions are worse, the waters are less calm, the skies are less clear, it raises the question just how bad do the weather conditions have to be before the numbers start to tail off. As for what happens next, of course it's unclear. Migrant flows of this nature are inherently unpredictable. If you'd have asked me last year whether the numbers this year would be this large, I probably would have said no. That's how unpredictable 
it is. And to see whether these numbers continue to climb, I would expect that in the short term they will drop off during the winter months. But we'll have to see whether the numbers next year um, are as high as this year and whether the government's policies, French and the UK government's policies, really begin to bite. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.